Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. All right. All right. Welcome back. It's Sean and Mike in another episode of EMS on the Mountain. Yeah. So that's Mike. He loves my intro. That's because I've got the charisma and Mike's got Mike. All right. So this week, uh, we're going to go into a little bit more depth uh, into what is wilderness medicine, right? So we talked on that briefly last week, and we're just going to go into a bit more detail tonight. So big one. Uh, You'll hear Mike and I use the term austere medicine a lot, and we use these two terms, austere medicine, wilderness medicine, uh, interchangeably, basically. Uh, So what is austere medicine? What is wilderness medicine? So Department of Homeland Security has a lovely pamphlet out there called Austere Emergency Medical Support. It's a DHS field guide, and I think they've got a pretty decent definition of what austere medicine is. And it goes... The delivery of EMS care under conditions of limited personnel and equipment, resources, and outside the existing framework of normal EMS. An austere EMS environment may include elements of any of the following. All right, and it goes on to list these 10 sub-elements. We're going to talk about those in detail in a bit, but uh, essentially the big piece there, right? Care under conditions with limited personnel and equipment. And that's what breaks down into austere EMS and if you think about it, wilderness is just an environment that happens to be, by its very nature, austere. Yeah, very much so. Um, so what I'm teaching newer providers how to think about problems uh, when it comes to folks being unconscious, et cetera, et cetera. It really comes down to a couple of simple things, right? There's either a sugar problem, there's a pump problem, or there's an oxygen problem. Well, when I think about austere medicine, there's either, you know, I drove up in a truck and walked 10 feet into your house, or I didn't. And technically, anything (laughs) that is outside of, you know, I drove up to your front door and I put you in the back of an ambulance with relatively few hurdles to get you there, that would technically qualify as an austere medicine environment. So they can be quantified as a number of different things. I think the DHS outlines them pretty well as the qualifiers. Uh, it can be everything from being on top of a mountain to, hey, it's snowing really hard and I can't get to Susie in a timely manner. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it's going to lead us into our, our big 10, right? So number one, an ongoing physical environmental threat. So if you think about that uh, out in the heat, the cold, out on the water, wind, et cetera, a uh, big one if we're talking austere wilderness style, altitude, right? So where Mike and I work, altitude isn't a huge problem. We don't get too big out here in the uh, mid-Atlantic region. But for our friends out on the going towards the West Coast in the Rockies, the Sierras, uh, up in Alaska and international places, altitude's a very big deal, right? Not just for the patients, but for the responders, right? If you're not acclimated to the altitude as a provider, you're going to be in a little bit more trouble than you'd want to be as well. Uh, so, again, wilderness, in my personal opinion, it's it's a subspecialty, especially within the United States, we tend to think of wilderness medicine as a subspecialty, but it's really austere. Wilderness is just the environment, right? It's the woods, it's the mountains, it's where we're at. Uh, and it's the austere piece, the lack of personnel and equipment that makes it different. All right, so not much really to talk about that. It's it's pretty simple there, right? So the next one on the list is, and here's a big one, right? Limited medical supplies, technologies, or resources. Mike, Mike Try to take a life pack 15 down trail once. I've, I've, it was a sh- yeah, I've it was tried a it a couple walk. of times. Um, to be fair, the life pack 15 told me everything I wanted to know once I got there. But it turns out that even if I would have had to intervene, though I did not, uh, I didn't have a whole lot of additional resources coming. And once you push Amio into somebody, it turns out like you're kind of doing a lot of work right there. So Sean and I often joke, you know, if it turns out you're going to have a heart attack six miles in, I guess it was your time. But the reality is that you're not bringing people back from some sort of major cardiac event deep into the wilderness. That's just kind of the nature of the beast. We don't bring cardiac monitors into uh, the woods more than, you know, three or four minutes from a road. After that, if it if it doesn't fit on your back in a in a structured manner, you're you're probably not going to get use of that tool. 
Yeah, and that's exactly it, right. So LifePack 15 is too big. There's a couple of technologies that I'd love to get my hands on. One of which is a, it's a comes from a German company, but it's essentially it provides 12 lead ECG readings via your iPhone. It's got a whole set of cables that plug into your iPhone's port, and it's fantastic. One day when I get rich, uh, <laughs> I'd love to have one of those to take up on the mountain. But realistically, if we're talking about a wilderness environment or the austere environment, being able to do a 12 lead can be handy to do some cardiac monitoring to see what's going on and maybe rule in or rule out some possible conditions. But at the end of the day, if you're having chest pain, planning of shortness of breath, short of an ECG, my mind is saying you're having an MI, right? So you're, you're having a heart attack. What's going to change my treatment? Not much. I'm going to sling you some aspirin, start an IV, and hopefully get you off the mountain as quick as possible. Uh, ideally, if aircraft are available and we can hoist you and bring you out quicker and fly you somewhere, that's what we want to do. If not, monitor or not, you're getting the same slow ride down the hill in a basket. Uh, so having that available gives you a good data point, but it's really not going to help you do much out in the field. All right. Same thing. Like if you could get a point of care ultrasound, they have some fantastic portable point of care ultrasound devices. Now, same thing, they work Bluetooth. You can pull them up on your iPhone, iPads, um, can certainly confirm or deny some things, especially yeah. when we're talking about people for us, we do get people that take some tumbles off some of the waterfalls and climbing areas. Oh yeah, that can confirm that you have abdominal bleeding. Maybe I can look and confirm some ICP, but a good solid patient assessment is probably going to point me in that direction as well. Yeah. So confirmation, certainly. Uh, but is it something I have to have? Do I have to have that technology? No, good to have. If I have it, oh yeah, I'll use it, but it's not there. Big one though for us and for the average responders, that lack of medical supplies and resources, right? So my medical supplies is what is in my med bag on my back as I go up the mountain. Yep. You know, it's it's what I arrived on scene with. There's no running back to the unit to grab more of whatever it is I need more of. If I didn't bring a tourniquet and you're bleeding out, I better figure something out quick. Yeah. Right. Um, if I forgot my drugs, well, balls. Sorry. <laughs> um, hopefully Shush, it's nothing this is going to hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully it's nothing significant. I mean, realistically, for us in the wilderness environment, it's it, a lot of it is analgesia. You know, it's pain management. Um, I'm not giving you a whole lot of, well, I'm not going to probably give you any cardiac related drugs. Um, epinephrine, should you have been stung by bees out in the woods and you've made it till I, I got there. Technically, we'll morphine's a pretty good cardiac drug, but that's, you know, yeah, whatever. You're not getting it for cardiac things, right? Yeah, we're, that's yeah. another debate. Yeah. Uh, right. And then, so last one again is resources. Resources, when we initially get on scene, is... Mike and I, or one of us, and maybe one other initial responder. And then we have to make the determination of, of what else do we need. We may not get more than maybe two, four, six other responders to come up and help. And again, that all depends on what's going on. What time of day is it? Is there another event going on? Like again, when we're providing support at the national park, we may not be the only rescue going on. Mike and I might be separated on different rescues. It's happened to us a number of times this past year. All right. And so now when you're splitting up the limited resources across two, maybe three rescues, your resources run out quick. There's actually an interesting, um, I'll call it a correlation or an overlap a little bit between the concept of limited resources and the textbook definition of an MCI. So in an urban environment, an MCI is simply defined as any event in which the existing or available resources are overwhelmed, right? Well, technically, using that textbook that, that textbook definition, a lot of things that you would think of as being a standard uh, wilderness environment care situation quickly overrun the available resources, but we think about we quantify them differently. Uh, we quantify the fact that we mentally prepare to come with limited resources and do the best we can. Um, even even in situations where uh, in a more urban, uh, a deeper depth of available resources, you know, uh, your twisted ankle may get some analgesia. If we're having a busy day, that may get deprioritized and become a BLS call because the nearest ALS provider is two hours out 
and not equipped to go into the woods and get you. Uh, we're not available because we're tied up with other things. So uh, we just kind of, you kind of have to make do with what you got sometimes, which is in an urban world, you just call for more mutual support. When you start getting into an austere environment, uh, you have to make do with what you've got. And that's where the the limited resources and supplies really comes into play. Yeah, and that's a great point. So, and I know Mike's thinking of a particular incident that he and I were on last year um, with the NPS and we had two patients at the same time, both of them very severely injured. Um, and essentially that tapped out all of the park's resources at the time, right? We had two patients, neither of which was at a lower, what we'll call BLS level care. They both had significant injuries. They both ended up getting flown out, but we didn't have exactly everything we needed. Uh, there was a point where Mike was going to end up flying with his patient and I was going to ground transport with mine. Uh, aviation asset that came in that day said, Hey, we'll fly both, which cool. Mike got a good story out of it. Yeah. Um, and, and we'll probably talk about this case in greater detail later on too. So we won't leave you in suspense. We'll talk about this one a lot. Mike and I actually really like this story, but at the end of the day, same time, that's back when Mike and I only had one set of drugs to go between us. Yep. So we kind of had to ration and determine which patient was going to get what drugs, who was going to use what to make sure that we had enough to take care of both our patients that for the duration of our time with them. Oh man, I completely we, forgot about that. Like I was yelling up right? the hill, sending runners. Yeah, right. Yeah. So we're, yeah, we had runners because we weren't sitting right next to each other. We were actually a small terrain feature away, not a huge terrain feature, but I was uphill on a waterfall and Mike was on the downhill side of it a bit. And we had to send runners back and forth, one collecting information and bringing drugs. And, yeah. you know, I think I had most of the IV supplies in my bag running those down to you and, yeah. you know, et cetera. Right. Yeah. Um, wow. And so that limited resources piece came in quick on that one. That was actually a, what, what, for Mike and I, that's, it's one of our closest what, what wilderness areas that we respond to, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's the easy day wilderness call right there in that spot. Um, but the resources were tapped out quick. The supplies ran out quick because we basically needed to use up just about everything he and I both carry in our packs got used up on our respective patients Yeah, because they both had splinting, they had bandaging, they had wounds, you know, they had, Compound you know, they had fractures. to get pain meds. They were, they were messy. Yeah. I mean, they yeah. got... IV access, all the individual warming stuff, everything. We, we used it all. And it used up every other available resource in the park that was available to come and help with these two patients with us. Yeah, And so it, we went from zero to we tapped out the, that entire section of the park within 15 minutes. Yeah, um, And so that's resources is a big key one, right? Um, Mike and I are both fans. When you get on scene, start asking early. It's way easier to turn things off when people are still gathering at trailheads and setting up at staging than to wait until you're like, eh, you know, I don't know. Let's try this. And then it doesn't work. And then you need the resource and you've already wasted two hours. And it's better to get people on trail and then turn them off than be way behind the power curve on those extra resources. Anything else on that one, Mike? No, I think we pretty much belabored that one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so a lot again, to you it, gotta, right? There's a lot yeah, to there's it. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to it. And we got subsequent shows talking about some of the gear we carry and things like that. So if you want more detail on that, it's coming. All right. So the next one, and this one hits home for a lot of different providers, uh, depending on your level and where you're at. And that's limited medical expertise available, right? So we're not a quick, oh, let me just jump on my phone and call my hospital and get on with a doctor and get some med direction. Uh, we often work in places where there is no cell service. So we go on, you know, essentially our standing orders. Yeah, uh, we work in, we do work in places that may not even have radio coverage for our portable radios. Yeah, and that's a yeah. fact, right? So we can't even try to get a radio link and connect with medical direction that way a lot of times. And so with that, not not do only do me and Mike not always have access to medical direction, which to be honest, our protocols are pretty decent. We don't always need them. But the couple times we've needed them, it was, uh, we'll say it was challenging to get yeah. a hold of folks. And then there's some other challenges that came with that of, I'm not your OMD and click. And on the other side of that, for all the responders that come out there, there's not always a paramedic. There's not always an advanced level provider that comes out to every patient that gets injured in the backcountry. So some places, depending on where you work, you might only get an EMT that's responding. And that EMT, depending on how much time and experience they have, hit or miss, right? If you've got somebody who's been a good solid EMT, BLS practitioner for 10 years and they really know their stuff, excellent, right? Most of our injuries out in the wilderness, a lot of them are essentially BLS level calls. So if you've got that solid provider that knows what they're doing, they've got their good assessments down, they know their treatment plans, and they know the rescue side of things, getting people out and what's needed, it's awesome. But on those instances where even that EMT gets out there and he's like, 
holy crap, I have never had to deal with a patient that is this severely wounded or sick. And that's what gets a lot of people is it's not necessarily the, oh, that's a really bad broken leg. It's the, I have no idea why you're, you know, in and out of consciousness and vomiting. You know, their their skill set isn't at that level yet. And I just made a note, actually. Uh, we should probably do a future show on just being, if, if you work in either super rural or a more austere environment, there's a lot of time, energy, and effort that has to go into keeping skills up at every level uh, because the nature of doing wilderness EMS is you don't have nearly as many contacts as you would riding a busy medic unit, riding a busy ambulance, a super busy 911 system. And then you get that one patient that you only see one or two of a year that, you know, took a header off a waterfall and bounced their face off a rock. Or, you know, I mean, we've we've seen things like uh, 60 plus year old men slip on rocks and break ribs and blood pressures of almost 200 over 170. And the the, the evacuation plan was, dude, you better keep walking because if you sit down or, or we, we stop moving, you're probably going to give up the try, right? You're going to give up the fight. You really, there's a lot of critical thinking that goes into the limited resources thing we're talking about. And there's probably a whole set of episodes around resources and the ability to keep up that skill set because critical thinking and, and solving problem solving becomes a much bigger piece of the overall treatment plan when you know you're walking into an environment where you're not going to get everything asked for on a radio. Yeah, 100% right there, right? I know personally know some paramedics, you know, who don't do anything in the wilderness roster environment and they ride those urban trucks. Their skills and their knowledge base is marginal, right? It's they, they know enough to do their job successfully because they know I've got to deal with somebody for 10 or 15 minutes. I know my foundational skills to let, let them die and then I'm off to the hospital turning them over to the doctor, that next level of medical expertise. Whereas in Mike and I and all the rest of the wilderness practitioners out there, that 15, 20 minutes is four to 18, 24. I mean, there are some places out West, you know, that could be 24 plus hours where you're with your patient. If you're working true remote austere places. If you're one of those offshore oil rig guys or working overseas in certain environments, man, you, you, you could be looking at 72 plus hours with a patient, yep. right? And so like Mike said, medical expertise, don't think of it as always next level care. Think of it as your level care at the highest level you can be, right? So Mike and I, we are always looking for courses, I, whether it's smart or not. I foolishly registered for another <laughs> round of training, which yeah, Mike's laughing because Sean's really good at spending money on getting learned. Yeah, right. I always swear off. I've never taken another course like that again. And next thing you know, what, what's Sean doing today? He's registering for another one, right? So that's an ongoing thing. So next one on our list, uh, limited communications and little or no access to medical direction. Well, hell, I guess we already covered that under medical expertise. Yeah. I don't know how much else we need to talk about that, except that really where we operate, communications is extremely limited, whether it's cell phones, radios, et cetera. If you, you very seldom always get what you want. Even for us, where we work relatively closely to a large urban area, Mm -hmm. we still do not have service in most of these places. When you get down in those valleys, you know, yeah, a lot of times your radios don't work. They don't make it to the repeater towers and and that's it. You're on your own. So yeah, it yeah. is worth Limit note though. I, I, it occurred to me as we were talking about this, that we've kind of acclimated to that pretty quickly, right? Like it is definitely a call out from the, from the point of view of this field guide and the DHS perspective on what makes austere austere. But I don't know if it's just because we've been working in this environment long enough that we just, we understand that's the scope of the thing. And I'm, I'm guessing, <laughs> you know, if you took a, a, an urban provider off of a, you know, shiny new Horton truck with all the latest Motorola gadgets and gadgets and throw them in the woods with us all of a sudden, they'd be like, holy cow, this is a totally different world. But you do acclimate to it. You do acclimate to the, you, you put systems in place to mitigate some of these things, but communication is the big one. Communication is probably one of the two, I would say communications and environment are the two big things that differentiate austere medicine from a more urban environment, right? Mm. The, yeah, certainly. The rain, the cold, the heat, the sun. Those are all things you can't run away from in an austere environment. And the ability to communicate and get things to you in a timely manner or have conversations with folks that you need to communicate with, it's just different. And those are things you have to plan for and have to have – you have to have a lot of self-confidence and, and skill set to uh, to not get thrown off by the fact that, you know, oh, I can't communicate with base. I can't communicate with uh, my medical direction. I guess I'm going to have to make the best of what I've got and keep moving the ball. Yeah, that's exactly it, right? And, and so I discovered this document, I don't know what, two weeks ago. I sent mm -hmm. to Mike and I, I kind of really like some of this initial stuff. I haven't finished going through the entire document yet, but just some of their, their initial definition and these items really hit – the things that make things austere. Since Mike and I have been working in this environment, well, especially together since essentially 2010, whether it was on the SAR teams providing support to the same group of people, yep. uh, 
we've gotten used to operating in that lack of communications thing. So yeah, we, for us, it's really not that big a deal. Yeah. But we've had some new folks come out who've done ride-alongs with us who are interested in the wilderness environment and who are like, Hey, where's my radio? Uh, you don't get one chief. Oh, yeah. but how do I call whoever? Well, you don't, you don't. don't lose yeah. me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So people that, especially some providers that get really used to when they get that complex case, like, man, what do I do here? I'll just call medical control and figure that out. Yeah. Well, we can't, right? So there's a lot of times Mike and I have to troubleshoot on our own and it's like, well, I think this is what you got going on. So I know this is your problem. So I know this can help fix that. So let's try and work on that because this is what I'm carrying to do that with. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, even, you know, you can go down the road of critical care and all the, the drips yeah. and the drops and the, and the situations and the fixes and the stuffs, but that also comes full circle to, hey man, if it's not on your back, uh, you don't have it. Even if you know that you need to give this guy bicarb, or you know that this individual needs to be put on a drip for this, that, or the other, you know, pressers and things aren't really a thing you're doing in the woods on a regular basis. It's just not happening. So yep. you got to make do with what you got. Exactly it, right? So that kind of leads us into the next one, right? The limited availability of transportation, right? So this is the big one, right? So anybody that's run urban EMS, you know, you've got the ambulance, right? You've usually got friends who are willing to come and help, you know, your engine companies, if you're working with a fire service or additional units, depending on where you're at. Like Mike and I here on the East Coast, most of the ALS responses get an ambulance and an engine company, you know, depending mm-hmm. on what it is. Yep. So you, you're used to having vehicles and people. Well, in the wilderness, transportation is feet, right? There's yeah. one thing that's got one wheel on it, and that's the litter. And if you haven't seen a wheeled litter, do some Google for uh, searching, a little Google foo, and look up a you know search and rescue wheeled litter, yeah. and go, oh, and no, it's not motorized. Although I have seen you know at trade show things, they do make motorized versions that run on electrical battery, but yep. they weigh a boatload and they don't work like you want them to. It's like. If you were on a scenic paved trail, that'd be awesome. In which case, get a golf cart. Um, yeah, or get a UTV or drive an ambulance down the paved trail. But, right. So yeah. up in our park, we do have a UTV and it can really only get on the bigger fire roads. Yeah. It's gotten on one trail once for us. It was the greatest carry out in the world because a yep. uh, patient was by no stretch of the imagination light. Uh, once we got the uh, patient hefted up and strapped down in the litter into the back of the UTV, which it's actually set up and designed for. It was the greatest carry out ever. Was, Mike climbed up next to the patient in the uh, attendance chair and the rest of us just kind of walked behind following it up the trail. It was amazing. Right. But other than that, it's transportation is you. Right. So you got to think about that. And that goes into the resources piece, communications piece, training piece. It all gets tied together. Right. So if you're thinking transportation is people, those are resources and those resources got to get moving and they got to bring the right stuff. Did somebody actually bring the litter? Oh, crap. I Mike had to have the things to strap the guy into the litter. Right. Yeah, that's happened. Yeah. So that's happened to Mike and I both on multiple occasions. Like, uh, you guys didn't bring the sleeping bag and stuff for the patient. Oh, did we, were we supposed to? Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Cool. Breaking into my backpack and giving up my gear again. Yeah. All right. Um, best case scenario in the wilderness environment helicopters, right? Everybody wants the helicopter, call the helicopter. Well, we have uh, essentially three agencies that fly helicopters into our, our park. You know, one of which is also a federal agency, but they are not always available because they have other federal jobs. And we are just a, yeah, we're almost probably a tertiary response for them. And then the other ones are traditional helicopter EMS systems. One flies out of a hospital and the other is uh, one of the just private HEMS companies that responds to our area. And of course, with those guys, they're not coming in the wilderness. We have to get the patient from the wilderness to a suitable landing site for those guys to come in and pick up the patient. Feasible? Absolutely. We do it. But the other one, the other, the federal agency, they can hoist. And that's exclusively, almost exclusively what we use them for um, is the hoist capability. And so that's it. Transportation, it's it's limited. It's on you, right? A lot of that will be uh, park, region, Etc. specific. Maybe your agency doesn't have a UTV. You don't have ATVs. Maybe you don't even have a wheeled litter because you don't do that many carryouts. But when you have one, it's like, oh, well, that's terrible. We should look into one of those wheels. Because mm-hmm. the wheel does help. But again, it's just a wheel. It just helps balance that load and take some of the strain off the individuals having to carry it. So transportation, it's definitely a consideration. Um, and I know from the DHS perspective, this was written 
as a limited resources piece following, you know, a natural or man-made disaster when you don't have, you know, a fleet of ambulances to get out to everybody, right? But we take that spin as, you know, transportation, there's not a truck coming to us. There's right. not a there's not well, there's ambulance. no road coming to yeah. us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Getting to the road is a good sign, right? Yeah, I like getting to the road, and sometimes that's an endeavor. All right. So, next big one: uh, altered condition of the medical responder. So this one ties into the environment, right? Yeah. So if it's like for me and Mike in the Mid Atlantic, if we're taking one of these the longer hikes in July or August, when it's ninety five and ninety eight percent humidity. Yeah, it sucks, right? We are hot, we are sweaty, we are dehydrated when we get to the patient. We try to you do your best to drink your water, make sure you stay hungry, or not hungry, but fed, so you avoid being hungry, keeping yeah. all your mental faculties together. But it can still be a challenge, right? And then when you get on scene with your patient, you're like, cool, I'm on scene, here's what I got. Even if you're fit enough, you get yourself down into a, we'll say a relatively normal state physiologically yourself, you start doing your work, you're still in that environment. So if it's still hot out, it's still hot out. You're still exposed to the sun. Yep. If it's in the winter months, it's cold. It might be snowing and raining and you're still in that environment. So you need to have the gear with you to take care of that. But you yourself, um, you need to be on the ball with taking care of you, your hydration, your food. You can't let your blood sugar drop too low. You got to be eating food. You got to be drinking water. Uh, because the yeah, patient man. is counting on you to be at the top of your game to take care of them. You can't be rocking hypoglycemia and slinging ketamine, man. It's just, it's not a good combination. <laughs> yeah. The altered giving medicine to the altered. <laughs> right. <laughs> Although it'll take yeah. you some work to get truly hypoglycemic, but yeah, I mean, the whole Unless hangry you, piece. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, especially the dehydration. Dehydration is a big one and cold. Mike and I've seen a number of other providers in the park in the winter months when it's cold. They essentially just want to shut down, right? Yep. And so you're just going to – and I don't know. There's not much to that other than do your fitness, right? Get out there, work out. Yeah, I think there's a there's a buddy system component there as well, right? It hasn't happened much with us, but keeping track of your coworkers, your partners as well, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, you know them better than, than they might know themselves when they're getting tired or angry or cold. Our, in our system where we operate, we're pretty good about saying, hey, dude, it's it's cold. Like, I'm cold. Help me fix yeah. this problem. Yeah. But it, it is, you know, we talk about this in the in the more traditional urban environment as well. But if you feel like your partner's off, it's probably because your partner's off. And sometimes yeah. it's, it's your partner that is going to recognize it. The last thing you want to do, you want to talk about a, a resource constraint problem, already operating under a limited situation, and now you have become a second patient or you have become someone that requires resources. That is a, that's a bad situation to be in. Yeah, so. exactly. Right. And so that's, my, I had ran into that directly like, oh God, like three years ago now. Um, There's a carryout going on. Mike and I were being held in reserve uh, for quite a while. We, we found that they were like, all right, just get out there, see what you can do, get them moving. We got out there. And when I was talking with who the primary care provider was for the patient at that time, that individual was wrecked, right? They'd already been on trail for another rescue earlier in the day, you know, had to finish that rescue, right back on trail, back for the second patient. And by the time I got to them, they were they were at their physical and mental limits. Yeah. Right? When I handed them a bottle of water and a candy bar, it was like, is this really for me? It's like, yeah, go sit over there. Yeah. I got this. Yeah. Tell me the problem. I'll take care of this now, right? And I took over the patient at that point, right? Because they, yep. they were smoked, right? And it happens. Um, earlier this past season, right, I was uh, I had a patient we were taken off the hill, which which is another good story about dosing your meds. Um, yeah, yeah. But Mike ended up, he was with me and I didn't need Mike for my patient, but Mike ended up having to care for a couple of the other um, rescuers, yes. right? Yes. Providing That's a little trauma a care yeah. right? and, and take yeah. care of some people too, right? So there you go. You got these two paramedics, one's on one patient, one's taking care of the rescuers who are becoming patients along the way, right? So it is a thing, right? Keeping an eye on your team, you know, it's don't get so focused on your patient that you suddenly start losing other members of your resource team to injury or illness, right? Yeah, and I think I think specifically, I think the fire service is getting better about the holistic provider, right? But but there is still a big culture about you know, Roger up, get the job done, the job at whatever cost. Well, it turns out that if you're in an austere environment, there isn't anyone else to necessarily back you, and if you don't take taking care of yourself seriously both preparatory wise in your physical and mental health, but also when you're out doing work, taking time to take breaks, say, Hey, you know what? We need a break. 
Um, or if you're lucky enough to operate in a system like we do, where oftentimes Sean and I are going together for more critical needs, we alternate, right? Or if you're caring for a patient overnight, right? One's awake, one's resting. Work rest cycles are important. Um, but those are things you typically don't think about in an, in an urban setting, right? But the, the altered condition of the medical responder can become a real problem real quick. And you, you have to be prepared for it. You have to think through that problem. Absolutely. Right. Uh, so which kind of leads us nicely into our next sub-element, urgent clinical situations requiring immediate intervention outside of standard protocols. Right? You'll find that most people who will operate in a wilderness EMS environment operate under a modified set of protocols. Right, Almost every one of them, at least they should be, set up for operating without medical control. Right, You should have your cut lines for, all right, so if you can't get a hold of a doctor, you can now do these additional things if you deem it necessary for your patient. And so there are some things that people can get away with in a wilderness environment that you could never do in the urban side, right? So a big one is like uh, for where we're at, the BLS providers with us, with the MPS can do dislocation reductions, right? You're never going to find an EMT who can dis or, uh, do a dislocation reduction of a shoulder or a knee in the urban setting. It's right. going to be like, uh, no, stabilize and transport. Fool, what are you thinking, <laughs> right? And we're talking about EMTs doing this and they're not able to give, you know, any sort of analgesia beyond OTCs, Motrin, Tylenol kind of stuff. Having that extended scope of practice really comes into play in the austere environment, right? Because yep. you're not close to a doctor. You're not close to a hospital. You need to be able to do certain things based on purely on the environment. Like, hey, if I can do the reduction of the shoulder now, you know, we'll relieve some pain and we'll make it so that you can walk out of here more comfortably. And then we can get you to better definitive care where you can get x-ray to make sure it's all correct, see the doctor, and then go home knowing that everything is as it should be. Whereas if you've got like maybe a dislocated knee, it's like, well, I can't put it back. Well, we got to carry you now. Whereas if I could reduce that dislocation, give mm -hmm. you some time, provide some crutches, we might be able to assist you down a small bit of trail to get you out instead of having to carry you for the next four to six hours. We yep. can maybe walk out in two. So there's... A lot of things like that. And then And to be clear, we're not we're not talking about like, oh well, I couldn't get a hold of medical control, so I'm gonna do a figure thoracostomy. Yeah. Right. That's that's probably yeah. a little bit on the aggressive side. But yeah. uh, that's, that's you know, a, that, there can be middle ground here. And and yeah. I think the community around wilderness EMS is growing the standing orders piece, which goes back to our earlier conversation about maintaining skills. But I know a number of systems now are are uh, they have standing orders for crikes. They have standing orders for things that a lot of systems require you to call medical direction for. Right. Yeah, um, exactly. But, you know, these are just skills you have to maintain and these are, are activities you have to be able to perform uh, because you may not be able to talk to anybody. And yep. it's not just it's not just getting permission to do the thing. It's maintaining the skill set and being confident in the ability to do it when you necessarily need to do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not just, oh, I get to do this cool thing today, but do I do I really know how to do that thing? Have I ever really practiced it? Or yeah. did I just read about it and want to do it, right? Watching a YouTube video once going, yeah, I can crack now. It's like, well, that's how I learned. Okay, cool, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's, there's certain clinical situations, right? Where it's like, oh, I've got to do this thing and I've got to do it now. A big one, I think too, which is really found in the wilderness and austere environments. And it's, it's all about the environmental hazard. Sometimes we end up moving patients much quicker than they would get moved in an urban setting. And I'm talking really more about spinal and cervical spine, like precautions. It's like, Hey, look, we've got to get you out of this rock fall. I've got to get you out of this cold, wet stream that's flowing by you, or the hypothermia is going to kill you. Um, long before I figure out if you've got a spinal injury, I've got yep. to get you out of the water. So I yep. have to pick you up. I have to move you. Right. Whereas in an urban setting, we're going to wait till the engine company shows up. We're going to wade in there with our backboard and we're going to collar you up and put you on a backboard. And then I'm going to put you in the back of an ambulance and crank the heat to 80, get the wet stuff off you and be good. Well, for Mike and I, that's getting you out of the water, getting you onto the ground, getting you out of the wet stuff still, getting you onto something, insulating you off the ground and putting some things on top to help warm you. Um, if we have active warming measures, yeah, we're going to deploy those. If not, it's passive warming. We're going to do what we can. There's not always a lot of times it's like, we're not like saying we're like drop pack, start crike kind of situations necessarily, but there are certain situations where it's like, hmm, I've got to do this now for the safety of A, me, the patient, maybe the resources coming along, or it's the environment that's a threat, right? And I've got to move you now. I've got to do this to you now, which may or may not have been the choice in a more static and stable environment. So there's some thinking that goes in with that. And you got to weigh yep. those 
cost benefit kind of pieces while you're doing it. And this is a big one for wilderness austere. This is one of the big cut lines. Duration of care extended beyond standard operational situations. Right. So again, we go to the urban guys, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Um, Maybe okay. sixty. If you're if you're yeah, in a rural I mean, system, maybe it's a it's an hour's trip. By the time you're getting a nine one one response that's over an hour of ground time for a critical patient, you're probably calling HEMS if you have HEMS available in your system. Right. Exactly. You know, if if they're not flying, they're not flying. Uh, a critical patient that gets to spend six hours with us is a pretty normal thing. But then that's it. Like Mike and I, we mentioned that in show one. What we'll call a short wilderness, you know, call out. Is four hours, literally four hours. We had a ride along at the end of this last season and we were talking about it's like, oh yeah, short calls four hours. Um, they went out with Mike and how long was it? Just over four hours. It was just over four hours. And I was like, all, all right. right, cool. That was like the first call of the day. That's like my warm up. Let's go do two more. Oh, yeah. All right. And that that yeah. was for a pretty simple broken ankle. Yeah. You know, and it was four hours long. Uh so no no reasonable well, not reasonable, I guess, no normal urban EMS agency that isn't working in a in a truly rural environment is hanging out for four hours for a broken ankle, right? That's like, right. oh, your ankle's broken. Here's some analgesia. Let's get that, uh, take the edge off that pain. Let's splint you up. Let's get you in the back of the unit and get you driving down to the hospital. So we can get x-rays and ortho, right? Um, and then Mike and I have both had instances of having to stay overnight mm-hmm. out on the mountain with patients simply because they could not walk out. We could not get a carryout team together in time. Uh, other conditions perhaps make it too dangerous to do the carry out depending on where we're at in the night, just because then you're putting a lot more people at risk of falls yeah, and you end up hurting more rescuers than you do with the patient. And then if you drop your patient in these situations, that's also, as I understand it, not cool. I believe dropping people is considered uh, not the best care that you can yeah, be providing at the time. Form, but right? you know, hey, it happens. Right. Right. So extended patient care is a big one. Even if you're out for just a day hike with friends and you're a wellness first aid provider and your friend sprains an ankle, again, you're you're as far down trail as you are. You stop, you do your basic assessment of your patient, your you know, your buddy and go, Oh yeah, I'm not sure if that's broken or sprained, but here I've got a Sam splint. Let me watch this neat trick I learned in his course. You split him up yeah. and you help him walk out. Man, that's that's greater than the 15, 20, 30 minutes you're gonna get with an ambulance call, right? So time yep. with your patients. Big dividing line in my personal opinion. It's definitely one of those things that sets the austere and wilderness piece apart is you just spend so much more time with your patients than you normally would. Even for Mike and I. I, Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, go for it. Um, uh, This is the place where I, I, when I think about this sometimes, uh, this is the place where you almost see a little bit of a crossover or or a little bit of a more merger with a traditional nursing scenario Mm -hmm. with EMS, right? Typically, we as paramedics are not really good at doing the five, six, seven, eight hour <laughs> keeping track of the things, right? You and I have done some training together. We, you've got some other training in your background, right? Doing uh, uh, charting and graphing vitals over time to get a picture of changes in the pathophysiology of your patient is not something we're typically doing on an ambulance, right? No. It's just not. But well, and we can be with a patient, even in a 15-minute interval, we can be in a, with a patient where we're taking their, their vital signs 20, 25 times. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. On a regular basis, right? And that's yeah. where really, you know, a little bit of more standard, I'll call it trending in nursing care, comes into play that is something yeah. you just don't do in the urban environment. Yeah, I know. And I, that, yeah, again, 100%, right? You and I attended the same paramedic school together. Um, yeah. Because you talked me into it. I don't You're know welcome. if that was a smart decision or not, but hey, here we are. Um <laughs> Well, so you and I both know extended patient care like that was never even talked about, no. right? Trending vital signs beyond four sets was never discussed, right? So it's like- right. My life five minutes, records that. I'm fine. I don't have to worry about it. Yeah, right? So it's like every five minutes, cool. You know, um, unless my, you know, you got your alarm set up for something, yeah. your, your magic machine is going to alert you to changes in EKG rhythms or blood pressures or respiratory rates, et cetera. Yeah. And so- when we've got a patient and they're not necessarily critical, but we'll call them severe patients that are beyond just basic BLS analgesia type stuff. And we're just with them for a while. Yeah. I mean, we're, we have specialized patient care reports that we've developed or paper versions that yeah have a block of like 15 or 20 sets for vital signs, just so you can track, no kidding, trends over the time. I, you know, it's like when I had that girl, I, you know, she was getting dosed. Uh, we wanted ketamine, but the doc didn't like it because yeah. he didn't yep. want us to drip, which- yep. I support discussion, that. right? Yeah, yeah it's a different discussion. It. And we'll probably talk about that in, in another episode. But so she ended up getting dosed with a boatload of fentanyl. Well, 
I got to keep an eye on some things, right? I can't just keep dosing fentanyl blindly. So I got to keep right. up with respiratory rates, blood pressures, et cetera. So she was getting vitals every time before she's getting a dose, right? At, at a minimum, you know, when she was having to get those doses, we were trying to stretch it out because we don't carry that much normally. Right. Which we got a resupply on that one, didn't we? Didn't we yeah. actually have somebody hike us in more medications? Yeah. Which again, resources, right? We had another yep. AS provider bring us additional uh, drugs so we could. Yeah. yeah that, that was like a 13 hour care. deal if I remember. Yeah, that was a little over 12 hours. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, when we've had patients we've had to stay with overnight, if you get the patient who's hurt a leg or something and they're relatively static, you do need to encourage them to like, hey, let's roll to your left side for a while, roll to your right side for a while. Try to do a little massage of that stuff to keep the blood flow going, like what we call traditional nursing skills, right? That just paramedics yeah. aren't taught. They don't practice. Like, you know, yeah. research has shown us with backboards that patients can develop pressure ulcers within, you know, less than an hour. Well, if you've got a patient who's laying on the hard ground on a trail and with, uh, you know, some sort of closed cell foam mat or something underneath them, they're yeah. still just laying there static for a while. So you still got to think about those nursing conditions. Like, and not just that, but hey, have you been drinking? We gave you these bottles of water and it doesn't look like you've touched them. So let's go ahead and start drinking one of those. Hey, yeah, let's and, eat and- now. Right. And, so, and full disclosure, we don't do a whole lot of measuring ins and outs, but we've had a few patients where that actually becomes a thing, right? Yeah. You're not exactly what's going on with kidney function, what's what's going on pesophysiologically. They've got some condition that you're thinking might be rhabdo, might not be rhabdo, don't really know, can't really pull labs. You know, I mean, but that's that's when things like measuring urinary output as opposed to input becomes an important, right? And these are things that in a normal urban environment, we just typically do not address. No, even no. even critical care transport medics that are well, yeah, that's it. Just even that are educated care in this this at that level of care, they're not measuring urinary output on a regular basis. It's just not yeah. a thing you do, right? Yeah, I say it's they might keep an eye on it for the duration of that particular transport, but and again, that's usually pretty short depending on where they're at. And I say short when I'm talking a couple hours, because couple hours, yeah. Those longer interfacility things is where that would make a difference, right? But yep, yeah. Anyway. All right, what's next? So, and this kind of goes and ties into a lot of stuff we've already talked about, but it's any other factor or condition that alters the ability of the EMS responder to provide necessary emergency medical care. And I and I tie that back into everything else, right? Resources, supplies, the environment, access to vehicles, et cetera, right? I mean, that ties into all of it. So if if I only have the supplies that I bring with me, then then that's it. That that's that's a factor that alters my ability to provide certain levels of care. And that includes socks, man. That yeah. includes the ability to keep your own feet dry, right? Well, that's that's a true story, right? <laughs> I um, mean, it's an old school military thing, but quite frankly, if you're going right. to be out there for 20 some odd hours and it's the middle of August in Virginia, guess what? You're probably going to have swamp foot. Oh, yeah. And, right. and developing blisters yourself or making it hard to walk for yourself. Typically not a problem, even for a uh, an all day event, right? But you're going to be miserable the next day. You're going to be out of commission the next day if you're still working. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, you tear up your feet and you got bad blisters. The next day, if you have to go down trail, it's going to be miserable. Yep. Um, same thing with that, right? So you decided to cheat a little bit and you went with your backcountry bag, but you didn't really have it packed for backcountry gear, and you don't have your rain gear or your warm gear, and now you're overnighting and it rains. Well, good luck with that, my friend. No, I'm not sharing. You should have right. packed better. Yeah. Right? And that and that's something Mike and I see with some of the other folks we work with is they go. People always look at our packs and go oh my God, what do you have in those things? And it's like everything I can foreseeably need realistically, right. right? He and I do not carry anything more than we think we need. The problem is, is the environment we work in, we have to be prepared for any number of things. Like when I go out for a call out in the woods, I do not know if I'm going to have to stay overnight when I leave, right? Very seldom. We've only known about that once, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, the first time, we did not think we were going to have to overnight, and we did. And it was miserable. <laughs> it was fun. We had a it good was time. fun, but yeah, <laughs> it, but we weren't properly prepared. But I, guess well, what? The next time we went out, we were much better prepared. Yeah, I mean, mostly. I mean, we were prepared. We had an other visitor that was staying with us. A, yeah, that's fair. A guest provider that we had to share resources, our personal resources, with, yeah. which made it challenging. Um, but again, we got through the night. Nobody died. We were warm. We ate. We drank. We told stories all night long and checked on our patient. It was not a yeah, big deal. It wasn't the right? worst. But yeah. the next time, yeah, Mike and I did that. It was just the two of us and we had plenty of gear between the two of us and we were, you know, <clears throat> relatively speaking, comfortable all night. Yeah. I was right? certainly more comfortable the second time. Yeah. See, it's not like I was in my hammock all toasty and warm with all my underquilts and overquilts, but it was not, you know, for 
an impromptu overnight with a patient, it was fine. It um, probably it helped that those two events we're talking about were back to back one day after the next. And we were yeah. pretty darn tired by day two. So we probably yeah. were a lot more comfortable because we just wanted yeah, to we sleep were, We were exhausted. Right? <laughs> but again, and, and that goes back into looping back up to your provider, right? If, if you're not prepared, don't go. Um, so yeah, having your own personal kit in order is a big deal, right? Physically in order, right? So you got, you got to think of, you know, like if it's raining and it's cold and you don't have the gear necessary to keep yourself warm and dry, your care is going to be terrible because you're going to want to be sucking yourself inward and not looking at your patient. Uh, this one really doesn't impact us, but I'll just talk about it just for our folks that are operating in other environments that aren't in the, what we'll call the benign woods. And that's the limited capacity to provide care due to a security environment. Uh, for Mike and I doing wilderness care where we do, the threat of eco-terrorists running through the woods taking us hostage is, I won't say it's non-existent, but it's essentially non-existent, right? It's non-existent, yeah. Yeah. I mean, worst case for us is you've got some rogue poachers or ginseng folk that are like, uh, hey, and they'll go around us because they don't want to attract attention to themselves. It's not an right. issue for us. But for our friends that work in the austere environment overseas, yeah, security is a concern, right? If you're working, you know, as a medical provider at an oil field overseas or some other, you know, a doctors without borders facility in the middle of Africa somewhere. Security is a concern, right? Um, Man, I just heard about us, the though. Air Haiti program, the, the flight program in Haiti, like that yeah, alone, yeah. right? Security is a thing, right? They're yes. making decisions on whether or not they're going to transport somebody or set down at an area based on who's standing around the LZ when they make the, their approach. Yeah. So, right. so it doesn't always have to be a combat environment, but now, and, and here's one, this, and again, I'll tell you, this is why it's in DHS. So if you think like places like post-Hurricane Katrina, a lot of looting, a lot of roving armed bands, whether they are good Samaritans trying to defend their neighborhoods from the looters or assholes looking to loot and make trouble, right? Security can be an issue if you're an EMS provider in some of these areas, right? So it, it does apply to the U.S., but for Mike and I's general discussion of wilderness care and the operating environment we have, not yeah. so much. This will be the first and last time we discuss it, but it is a thing. Yeah. Yeah, until until we come across that one time when we're like, "Holy crap, man!" Yeah, I just got held hostage in the woods. But until then, right? And so that's that uh, was number ten, right? So those highlight the big ones, and and like I stated a little bit earlier, I think a lot of them loop back into each other. It's all interconnected, and so I think it does you, a good job of outlining. Yeah, the structure, I mean, that's right? what I'm I mean, I, I was just looking at the list and thinking through it and saying, "Huh, you know what? All of those apply to." Uh, base camp EMS. If you're a base camp on an expedition, like we're talking about doing next year, right? If if you're the medical provider above tree line on a mountain for a team that intentionally went there, right? Even if you have all the money and all the supplies in the world and you have access to the latest and greatest technology, well, it turns out if it's snowing on the mountain, you're not flying anybody out. And if it turns out somebody's got an altitude sickness, well, you got to deal with what you got, right? So that it really does encompass. I think they did a good job encompassing why it's quote unquote different. Yeah, no, and that's why I, I wanted to use them because I don't even I can't even count how many wilderness care, austere care books I have read over the years. Yeah. Um, I, I've got a bookshelf just full of them, right? And a lot of them have some very similar but very differing definitions. Uh, one of the more common ones you'll hear, especially on the more we'll say layperson, wilderness, first aid, wilderness, first responder side is an environment that's greater than one hour from definitive care, right? Well, holy that's cow. half my county. Right. So definitive care is, is essentially defined as a hospital. It's not right. defined as an, as an ambulance. Definitive care is, an, is a hospital. Well, how? Man, there are huge sections of this nation, like where my in-laws used to live in down south of here, they were in a wilderness remote environment because they were an hour over an hour from the local hospital. Right. Right. That's why I, I don't necessarily like that definition. It's a little too simplistic in its view because just about anybody that goes on a hike down a trail is automatically in that, oh, I'm one hour away from a hospital. I'm now austere I'm, or wilderness and I can do things. And right. That, and we have an upcoming show on, on talking about just because you can, should you, you know, it's by somebody's definition, a wilderness or a still environment. That doesn't mean it's the good thing to do. What we'll call some of those advanced skills, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's why I, I liked this definition. They obviously put some thought into it. Uh, I know there's some other folks that are out there, a gentleman we know who has a very similar approach 
and idea of defining wilderness EMS along these lines as well. And you hear Mike and I kind of skirt around certain people's names or agency names. And we do that just because we might have not have spoken to some of these folks and gotten their express permission to use their names and such. So don't think it's where we're trying to be super cagey. We're just trying to respect other people's privacy as well. Not everybody wants to be thrown out there in, in this All the names of anyone discussed have been changed for the privacy. Yeah. Of the, yes. Right. Yeah. And I know some people are going to sit there and go, but gee, why does the DHF even have an austere EMS field guide? If we think about the US post hurricane, earthquake, wildfire in Southern California, et cetera, right? Places where Homeland Security and FEMA respond to, these are fitting their things, right? They have a limited resource environment. There's not a fleet of ambulances available. For all you know, those local ambulance stations were flooded out or burned out and those resources don't exist anymore. Those hospitals become overwhelmed so that next level, you know, medical expertise is no longer available like it used to be, et cetera. Right? So, so these do apply here, even within the US. And this is something you got to think about where Mike and I live in the mid-Atlantic, hurricanes are a thing. Uh, we haven't had a big impact in a few years. Um, every year when the snows hit, we often get those big snowstorms that'll come through and shut down traffic. And both of us also ride the urban EMS ambulances. And if you're out working in those nights, man, you're, you're approaching that austere level because while my resources are more than I have with my backpack, it's still, it's what it's on my truck, which yeah. is a lot of resources. And I've done some rescues in the woods that required me to wear, you know, places where, where you and I work, the mid-Atlantic. But that one year we got a lot of snow and it turns out there was a call and I ended up in the backcountry alone because I was the only mm. guy that could get there on snowshoes yeah hiking into a guy that slipped right. and fell on rocks and we were there for a while yeah yeah so so it happens you know don't we, we don't want to take this conversation too far but don't think just the wilderness around steer environment only occurs truly out in the back country in the deep woods or in in very remote places right your right. urban happy household and neighborhood could find itself in one of these areas one day. And if you are a provider that's listening, of course, that's not a license for you to start just slinging ALS skills around the neighborhood because you think you need to. <laughs> these are considerations you need to think about that if I find myself on my ambulance in my urban setting post-hurricane, I know that my transport time is going to be longer. I know my communications are going to be disrupted because cell towers went down, radio towers went down uh, post 9-11. Ask those responders about cell phone and radio coverage, and they'll tell you it was horrible. Done a lot of research on that particular response, especially with Arlington County, Virginia. Uh, they pioneered a lot of stuff post 9 11 uh, when it comes to communications and interoperability, like ICS and all that stuff. And there's some very good lessons learned, but even then, what they found was we can't communicate. And communication is a big piece of this, right? That's basically it for tonight's show. Again, tonight we just wanted to kind of talk about what is wilderness EMS, what is wilderness care, what sets it apart from the urban side and try and give you an inside view as to some of the differences that Mike and I deal with in the wilderness and how some of our urban stuff can play into that and how a little bit of that can bleed over into the urban side as well. So yeah. I hope you enjoy this one. And uh, Mike will give you some places you can talk to us if you got some <laughs> questions or comments. We'll get, we'll get better at this, we promise. Hey, um, this is already way better than the first one. Yeah, true that. Wait till the third one, dude. Whew. <laughs> We're going to be wizards. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMSOTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.